The Apostle Paul writes this letter to the Christians in Philippi, and of course he's writing to us too. He's imprisoned in Rome, so he is under house arrest. He is chained to Roman soldiers for the, the crime of preaching and proclaiming, promoting the gospel of Jesus Christ. And he is sitting there, and he is awaiting sentence. He doesn't know for certain whether or not he's going to be executed or released, but he knows that one of those two fates awaits him. He's either going to be executed or he's going to be released. Now, in the words before our words today, Paul told the Philippians that though he desired to die, which for him, he said, was to depart and be with Jesus. That's why he would prefer to die. But he told them that though he preferred to die, he expected to be released from prison and possibly to return to the Philippians. That's what he's just told them. And that would have been a great relief to the Philippians because they were worried about Paul and they were worried about his welfare. And now in verses 27 and 28, Paul turns his attention from himself to the Philippians. He has responded to their concern for him by saying essentially, don't worry about me. But now he shares his own concern. And this, in these verses, will be the very first instruction that Paul gives in this letter. So he's taken a while to get there, but he now gives them his very first instruction. And here it is in verse 27. Let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Now that is already the fifth time Paul has mentioned the gospel. It's the fifth time. In verse 5, he mentioned he and the Philippians' partnership in the gospel. In verse 7 and in verse 16, Paul talked about the defense of the gospel. In verse 12, Paul said that his imprisonment was serving to advance the gospel. And now here in verse 27, Paul instructs the Philippians and us to live worthy of of the gospel. So, gospel, 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 gospel. Five mentions of the gospel. And here is the striking thing, I think. The striking thing is that in every single one of these gospel mentions... Paul is referring to the gospel and the Christian life after conversion. The gospel is not merely for evangelism and conversion. 
I used to think that. For a long time I thought that. The gospel. That's what you use to evangelize someone. That's what is needed in order to convert someone to Christianity. And the only time the gospel came up, the only time the gospel came out, was if I or another Christian was dealing with someone who was not a Christian. But here is Paul at the beginning of his letter. He's mentioned the gospel five times. And in every single mention of the gospel, he's talking about the Christian life downstream from conversion. The gospel is for all of life. That's the implication. The gospel is for all of life. To be sure, the gospel is necessary for conversion. But the gospel is also necessary for sanctification. Now let me say that again without the theological terms. To become a Christian, you must hear and believe the gospel. And to be a Christian, you must hear and believe the gospel. It's both and. To become a Christian, you've got to hear the gospel and believe it. To be a Christian, you've got to hear the gospel and believe the gospel. The gospel, listen... It is not something you believe and then move on from. The gospel is something you believe and move into. The gospel is not the front door of the house. The gospel is the house. It's where you live and breathe and eat and drink and marry and work and parent. It's absolutely dependent on the gospel. And so Paul makes reference to the partnership and the defense and the advance of the gospel. And now in our text today, Paul's intention is to call Christians to a life that is worthy of the gospel. And so predictably, the intention of this sermon submitted to God's word is to call each and every one of us to a life that is worthy of the gospel. Before I preach this sermon, we should pray together. Would you please bow your heads with me? Our Father in heaven, as we open your word together... We ask that your Holy Spirit would come and help us to understand your word and to apply your word. We ask that you would enlarge our hearts for you, that you would enlighten our minds for you, and that you would conform our desires and our wills into your will. And we ask this in Jesus' name, amen.
So please open your Bibles to Philippians chapter 1. If you're using one of our church Bibles, you'll find it on page 636. And as you've already heard, we're in verses 27 and 28. And here's how it begins. Verse 27. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So there it is. There is Paul's first and maybe most significant instruction in this letter to the Philippians. We're going to need to understand it this morning. What does Paul mean? What does God mean when he calls Christians to live a life that is worthy of the gospel of Christ? So we will spend most of our time understanding that instruction. But first, I'd like us to understand the rest of the text. We'll kind of work backward today. Let's understand what Paul says after. So here's where we're going, if you'd like to know. There'll be two parts to this sermon. In part one, we're going to look at Paul's purpose behind this instruction he gives, which we hear starting with the words, look with me, so that, in verse 27. So everything after, so that. That's Paul's purpose for the instruction. We'll look at that in part one. And then in part two, we're going to look at the actual instruction, which again is this. We'll say it a lot today. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. That is the instruction. That is clearly the main point of the text. But first, in part one, let's understand Paul's purpose behind saying it. Listen with me as I read Paul's purpose behind this instruction. We'll read it all together beginning in verse 27. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ so that... So let's help one another to remember something Those two words, so that, that signals to us that Paul is about to tell them and about to tell us why he's instructing them this way. His purpose behind it. He's instructing them this, so that. And we'll see, he's hoping to hear something about them. He's hoping to hear something about them. Let's keep reading. Whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you. So there it is. Hear what? What is he hoping he will hear about them? Let's keep reading. That you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. So let's concisely break this down one piece at a time. Here's what Paul is hoping to hear 
about the Philippians. First, listen to the rest of verse 27. That you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Well, Paul clearly wants to hear that this church is united. You hear the unity in those words that Paul longs for in this church that he loves. In one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side. He hopes to hear about unity. This is not something, what he is calling them and us to do, it is not something that they do merely as individuals. Apparently, what Paul is calling them to do is something that they do together. They do it with one mind and with one spirit, and they do it side by side, arms locked together. So one spirit, he says, one mind, he says, side by side. There can't be mixed agendas in this church. There's got to be one singular agenda. The Philippians are going to have to be for one another. They're going to have to be devoted to one another. They're going to have to be loyal to one another. They will have to speak well of one another. They can't slander one another. They cannot gossip about one another. One spirit, one mind, side by side. And what are they doing together? They're standing firm. That's one thing. What do we do together? As Christians, what do we do together as a church? We're not in Philippi, we're in Roseville. What do we do together as a church? Paul, stand firm. He wants to hear that they're standing firm. They're not turning around. They're not backing up. They don't have a reverse gear. They are anchored. Their feet are nailed to the floor. They are like soldiers holding their position in battle. They're standing firm. What else are they doing? They are striving. Striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Now, let me say the Greek word out loud, the Greek word for striving here, and you will immediately have a better understanding of what Paul is talking about when he calls the Philippians to strive. The Greek root word is athleo, from which we get words like athlete. Paul hopes to hear that the Philippians are striving for the gospel like an athlete strives for victory. 
the very best athletes strive. The very best athletes work hard. The best athletes outwork the other athletes. Anyone who knows anything about athletics, about sports, knows this to be true. It is one thing to just be given a God-given gift to do something athletically, but it is something else to strive to get better and better as an athlete. And those who strive are always the best athletes. And so striving often is in athletics and should be, striving should be rewarded. Trying should not be rewarded. We're not going to go into that, but that's a wrong message to send. Trying should not be rewarded. Showing up should not be rewarded. Participating only should not be rewarded. That should not get you a prize. Striving should be rewarded. Striving for the prize. So Paul is hoping that the Philippians, and wants to hear that the Philippians are working hard at this, and we'll get to it, letting their manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Are you together standing firm? I want to hear that, Paul says. Are you together standing firm and striving for this? Paul wants to hear that. You'll see when we get there that living a life worthy of the gospel of Christ is hard work. Let me say that another way. It's impossible work. It's impossible work. You will need one another. In this church, you will need one another. You will need to stand firm. And you will need to strive. Let me give you an illustration of this. I was so proud of my son, Peyton, at the end of the school year. Peyton is our 14-year-old son. I was so proud of him. He had been training for months for a year-end competition at his school. It was a a strength competition called the Strongest Lion. And in this competition, they were going to be flipping enormous tires. They were going to be pressing heavy sandbags over their heads. They were going to be carrying large logs, and they were going to be pushing weighted sleds up hills. Amazing, amazing competition. So Peyton had been training it for months and months and months. He was the smallest boy in the competition. And he won. He won. But here is how and why he won. He didn't win, obviously, because he was the biggest. I'll tell you. He won because he strived. He strived. We watched him train and then watching him in this competition. I mean, my hair was all standing on end. I've got these goose bumps from head to toe. My heart was pounding. I mean, I just wanted to scream. That's my son. 
But he strived in that competition, and I watched him as the others would tire. I watched him just turn off this chip that says, you're tired and this is painful, you should stop. That chip kicks on pretty early for me. And he just denied it. He just turned it off, and he just strived and and just kept going until he blew the whistle. I was so proud of him. Now, I can only pray that Peyton and Brady and Jackson and Blaze and Avery and Reed will strive that way spiritually. That's what I want to hear more than anything. Not that they would win physical competitions. Well, that was, it was amazing. But I want to hear that they are striving to live a life worthy of the gospel of Christ. Listen, do you know what is harder than flipping tires and pressing sandbags over your head and pushing weighted sleds up hills and carrying enormous logs 100 yards? Do you know it's much more difficult than that? Do you know it's infinitely more difficult than that? Living your life in a manner that is worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So you will need to, and Paul hopes to hear, that they are striving. So Paul hopes to hear, first of all, that the Philippians are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. What else does Paul hope to hear? Verse 28, read with me. What else does he hope to hear? And not frightened in anything by your opponents. So the athletic metaphor continues. There are opponents. As a Christian, you have opponents. I don't know if you think about this. I'm not saying, you know, name them and put them on your wall, but you have opponents. Or to use another biblical term, you have enemies. You certainly have an enemy. But you have opponents in life, and you will have opponents in life. You have enemies in life, and you will have enemies in your life. You will have people who are against you. They are not for you. They're against you. They don't want it to go well for you. They're opponents in life. They're enemies in life. If you do the right thing and speak the truth, listen, you will be opposed. If you're not opposed ever, consider whether or not you are doing the right thing and speaking the truth. So I cannot do the right thing, or I can do the right thing really privately, or I cannot speak the truth, or I can speak the truth really quietly, and I may avoid a lot of opposition. And some of you love and strive to avoid opposition, to avoid conflict. Be careful. 
That will keep you from doing the right thing. That will keep you from speaking the truth, even in love. You need to strive to let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So Paul is hoping to hear these things. And I'll tell you, as I was thinking about that this week, if, if I ever leave this church, and I have no plans on ever leaving this church, I hope one day some of you children and teenagers will have to pry my cold, dead hands off of this pulpit. If I have it my way, that's how I want to go. Just die right here, clutching this pulpit. That would actually be terrible for all of you, I think. <laughs> I'm just working that out in my mind now, you know, prying my cold, dead hands. So I'm sorry about the, the imagery there, but that's what I'm... Yeah, that is. That's what I'm hoping for still. I'd love to have the privilege and honor of, of, of being here as your pastor for as long as God gives me life, seeing kids raised up in this church, and I would love that. But I can tell you that if I ever did leave this church, this is what I would hope to hear. Right? Paul's not in Philippi. If I wasn't in Roseville, this is what I would hope to hear. I'd hope to hear that you were standing firm together, that your feet were nailed to the floor. I would hope to hear that you were striving for the faith of the gospel of Jesus Christ. I would hope to hear, and I do expect that the the climate is going to get increasingly uncomfortable for Christians in this country, I would hope that even if it does, that you would not be frightened of your opponents and you would boldly and fearlessly strive for the faith of the gospel. That, that's what I want to hear. That's exactly what Paul wants to hear. Understand that if we do that, and as we do that, and I believe we are doing that, this is a very dangerous church. We are a dangerous church because we believe the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because we preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because we believe that the word of God is inerrant and infallible and sufficient for all of life. We are a dangerous church because we are in the world and we hold high, higher than anything, the cross of Jesus Christ. That puts us in crosshairs. That puts us in the line of sight of enemies and opponents and certainly our great enemy, the devil himself. So friends, don't take it for granted. We better learn now how to stand firm. We better learn now how to speak up. We better learn now how to do the right thing. And now what about this last phrase? When the Philippians stand firm and strive and are not frightened of their opponents, it will be a sign. Did you hear Paul say that? This is a clear sign to them, that's your opponents, of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. In other words... This kind of life that Paul is talking about is a signal. It's a witness. It is a testimony. It is a sign of where 
you where we stand as a church, and it is a sign where they stand before God. It is a sign of where they are headed and where you are headed. You will fearlessly stand firm and strive with God and be saved. And they will rebel and oppose you and God and be destroyed. And the life you live now clinging to Christ is pointing, is a sign, is a signal that that day is coming. So the prayer is that the world would see that and turn. And turn. So that concludes part one of the sermon. That is Paul's purpose behind the instruction he gives. So to say it again in Paul's own words, Paul gives the instruction so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel and not frightened in anything by your opponents. So I think we're ready now to look at the instruction, this weighty instruction. So let's go back and read it together. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Well, let's begin with the word only. It's an important word. It means solitary. It means alone. It means nothing more. In other words, here is what Paul is saying. This alone should be your task. This and nothing more is your purpose in life. This is your singular mission. If you do anything, do this. If you don't do anything else, do this. Let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. So the Christian asks, what am I here for? The Christian asks, what does God expect of me? The Christian asks, what am I supposed to do with my life? And the answer is here, live worthy of the gospel of Christ. That's the call. Now let me ask you this. Aren't you thankful for simple summaries like that? Christians sometimes can make things so complicated, so complicated. Religion in general can definitely make things so complicated. You've got to do this, and then you've got to do that, and don't forget about this, and oh, it looks like you're neglecting that, and then there's this, and don't forget part two, and then second base and third base, if you jumped over that fence, and there's this hurdle, right, over all, so many rules, so many regulations, so many steps. Have you ever felt like that? Have you ever felt under that pressure? Have you ever had confusion? God, I don't know what you want from me. I don't know what I'm supposed to do, and sometimes you shouldn't feel that way. God gives us simple summaries like this over and over again. And that's what this call is. It is a simple summary of the aim of the Christian 
life. If a Christian asks you, how should I live? This is the answer. You can take them to this verse. If a brand new Christian says to you, okay, what now? You can take them to this verse. You can read verse 27 to them. You need to let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. You children who are here today, children who say, I believe the gospel. I trust Jesus. This is what's expected of you. That you should live your life worthy of the gospel. Teenagers, this is what is expected of you. If you are professing faith in Christ, it is expected of you, required of you from God, that you live your life in a manner that is worthy of the gospel of Christ. All of us here today who are professing Christians, this is what God requires. And thankfully, God does this throughout Scripture. He gives simple summaries of our duty before Him. Things like this, only, singular, alone. If you don't do anything else, do this. Simple summaries of our response to God, not complicated, not complex, but very straightforward. God has been doing this from the very beginning. It started in the garden in Genesis chapter 2. How complex was that? Don't eat that. How should I live? Don't eat that. But what else? Don't eat that. That's not the problem that it's complicated or we can't understand it. Later, when God's people were becoming a nation, God said, no other gods, no idols, no careless use of my name. Remember the Sabbath. Honor your mom and dad. Don't murder. Don't betray your husband and wife. Don't steal. Don't lie. Don't want stuff that's not yours. Do you remember what Jesus said later when the disciples came to him and said, there's so much here. What is it? What's the greatest commandment? He said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. I'm so thankful that God does this, that he boils it down, that he gives us simple summaries so that I can set my eyes somewhere, so that I can put one foot in front of the other. And now here in verse 27, again, is one of those simple summaries. Let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Only, Paul says, live like this. Let's get our mind, let's get our heart around this calling. Some of you have questions. You may not be sure exactly what Paul means. Well, let's look at some of these words and phrases. First, the phrase, let your manner of life be. English translations of the Bible have multiple ways of translating this. Some of your Bibles use the word walk. Some of your Bibles use the word live. Some of your Bibles use the, the term conduct yourselves. 
And here I'm reading from the English Standard Version. Let your manner of life be. Well, the Greek word Paul uses is politebome, from which we get words like politics. Here's what the word means, literally. To live in accordance with the civic duties of one's state or city. It means, let your manner of life be. It means to live as a citizen. Now think about this with me. There's a reason Paul is saying it that way to the Philippians. We're not surprised to hear Paul use a term, live as citizens, because... The Philippians, you may remember this from our introductions, took enormous pride in their Roman citizenship as Philippians. So many years before this, the city of Philippi was conquered. Many Romans settled there, and it was made a Roman colony, which was very different from all the towns and cities around it. Anyone who was a citizen of Philippi, though far away from Rome, was considered a citizen of Rome. In fact, it was called Little Rome. And they enjoyed all the benefits and privileges of being a Roman citizen. So citizenship was a big deal in Philippi. So Paul reminds them. He reminds the Christians in Philippi, you are citizens of another kingdom. That's what he's doing. I know you love your Roman citizenship. It's great you're a Roman citizen. But do not forget that you are a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. And you must, what is Paul saying? And you must live in accordance with that citizenship. So for all of you, as you live in a city or a county or a state or a nation, you know that you are obligated to certain rules and regulations. You are free, but you're not free to do whatever you want, not without consequences. You are under law. The commentator William Hendrickson, he translated this verse as continue to exercise your citizenship as a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. So the Philippians... And all of you have dual citizenship, at least. You have dual citizenship. You enjoy your citizenship in Roseville or Citrus Heights or Fair Oaks, Carmichael, Natoma, Sacramento, wherever you live, and the county you live in, and the state you live in, and the nation you live in. You enjoy that citizenship. And you are submitted wherever you are as a citizen. We have great responsibility to obey laws and pay taxes, to respond if called on to defend our nation from tyranny. But we are first, number dual, we are first and foremost citizens of heaven. And so we must obey the rules and regulations set before us by the kingdom of heaven. So Paul has, when he says, let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ, he has your behavior in mind, your conduct in mind, 
And he's asking you, he's commanding you to live as a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. So that's the first thing to understand. Live as a citizen. Let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. So do we remember what the gospel is? Are we on the same page when it comes to the gospel? Not everybody understands the gospel today. There are many different ideas that are promoted, even amongst professing Christians, of what the gospel is, what the gospel means, and many of them, you need to know this, are wrong. They're false. So what is the gospel? The gospel is the good news that God is merciful and has made a way for sinners to be saved from their sin. And you and I, every single one of us, we are sinners. I hope you know that today. I hope you know that you are a sinner. Which basically means that we do whatever we want. Even if it offends, hurts, displeases God and others. That's what a sinner does. We do what we want. God has created us and kept us and loved us. And he has commanded us, in fact, he has built us and called us, but he has commanded us to love him, to honor and worship him, to serve and submit to him. But we are sinners. And so we say no to God and we go our own way. This is what sinners do. And all of us have proudly gone our own way. Well, the Bible tells us that our own way, which is headed away from God, will end up away from God forever. So if we go our own way, away from God, we will end up away from God forever in a place of eternal torment called hell. And that is the hopeless story of humanity that is constantly unfolding all around us. It is creation and rebellion and death and judgment and hell. And that is a sad story. May Jesus weep it's especially sad because those in rebellion are often very happy and blind and content to deny there is a God who will hold them accountable. And so there is this story of creation and rebellion and death and judgment and then finally hell. But the gospel, again, is the good news that God is 
merciful and has made a way for sinners to be saved from their sin. Something has been mercifully added to that story. More precisely, someone has been added to that story. A hero has been added to the story. And his name is Jesus. The Son of God was born into this world to a virgin. His name was Jesus of Nazareth. And he lived a perfect and sinless life that we could not live. He was punished in the place of the people he came to save, which he did on the cross. And then on the third day, he did what you would expect a hero to do. He rose from the dead. He conquered death. He ascended back to heaven and sent his spirit to whisper this story to the heart of every single child he came to die for. That's the story. And so there's a new story, creation, rebellion, rescue, redemption, heaven, different eternity. That's the gospel. Now listen, this is what you must believe in order to be saved. Please hear that. That is what you need to believe in order to be saved from your sin. That belief is the very first thing you have to do with the gospel. That is step one. Believe the gospel. But once you do that, don't put it away. You're going to need it. You're going to need the gospel. You come into God's family by believing the gospel, but then you're going to need to partner in it. You're going to need to defend it. You're going to need to work to advance it. You're going to need to, as Paul says here, live your life in a manner that is worthy of it. So now we're finishing up, putting the pieces together, and we have this word, worthy. That word can get us into a lot of trouble. So we've got the let your manner of life be. I hope we understand that. We've got the gospel before us. And so now he's saying live, let your manner of life be. And what's the the word we've got to figure out? Worthy of that good news of Jesus Christ. Well, how could I ever live a life? Is this what you ask? that is worthy of the gospel. There's a part of me that doesn't even want to say that out loud. I don't even want people to think that's what I'm trying to do, to live worthy of the gospel of Christ. So let's think about this. Let's think about this. 
Paul is not saying that there is a way to live that makes you more worthy of God's grace. Can't be saying that. Paul is not saying, let your manner of life be deserving of the gospel of Christ. That's the synonym that my brain wants to put in instead of worthy. And it doesn't work. It falls apart. Let your manner of life be worthy, uh, deserving of the gospel of Christ. That would be wrong. We who read our Bibles, we know better. We could never be deserving of the gospel of Christ. We could never earn it. We could never merit it. That, that can't be it. So Paul is calling us to live in a certain way, not in order to secure something, but Paul is calling us to live a certain way because we have already secured something. So that's very different. He's not saying live in such a way so that you are deserving of the gospel and then you'll get the gospel. No, remember the Philippians had already been converted. They're his brothers, he calls them. They had already secured salvation. They had already believed and placed their faith in Christ. So to live your life in a way that is worthy of the gospel of Christ is to live in such a way that depending on the gospel of Jesus Christ, the power of the gospel is demonstrated in all that you do. Here's how Sinclair Ferguson put it in his little book on Philippians. And this sounds right on to me. Paul does not mean that we earn God's favor, but that our lives should be consistent with the gospel, living illustrations of the gospel's power. The gospel... If you really believe the gospel, if you've really taken the gospel into your heart, it transforms you. It transforms your thoughts. It transforms your desires, your emotions your passions, your goals, your decisions, your motives, your speech, your conduct. It changes everything. Or you haven't believed it. Remember the story Jesus told in Matthew 18 about the king who wanted to set all his accounts straight? It gets to the heart of what Paul is talking about. And that king brought one servant before him who owed an enormous debt. Like if you understand what the Bible is saying, 
it means it would take the guy like 200,000 years to work off his debt. It was that big. And so the king brought the servant. Do you remember this story? And he told the servant, well, listen, you, you, you can't do this. You're not going to pay it. So I'm selling you and your wife and your kids. And the servant came and pleaded with the king, no, please, no, please, no, be patient with me, he said. Be patient with me, and I'll work it off. And the king said, you know what? I'm just going to forgive your debt. Just gonna, I'm just going to erase it out of the books. Now go. Just <laughs> filled with joy, Right? So he goes, and now he's got a servant that owes a debt. And this servant's debt, he could work off in about 100 days worth of work. And he will not forgive him of his debt. He wasn't changed by what happened to him. He wasn't transformed. How could you be forgiven that enormous debt and now hold this small debt against someone else? Remember the point Jesus is making. The disciples are wondering, how many times do we have to forgive somebody? (laughs) What's the cap? Seven? And and Jesus just goes right after the heart of it, doesn't he? Think about what you've been forgiven of. What is he telling them? Think of the gospel. Remember the gospel. Meditate on the gospel. And then you live your life in a manner worthy of the gospel. Well, what's that guy with the debt can do? He's going to forgive that debt. So the gospel transforms us. We don't hold grudges. We don't need the approval of man. We are not crushed by criticism. We are not angry, impatient people. We are growing in all of this. And the means by which we grow is the gospel. I've been forgiven, so I extend forgiveness. I've been shown patience, so I extend patience. God's anger has been diverted. My anger needs to be diverted. God has been gracious, I need to be gracious. God loves, I need to love. God has given himself up for me, I need to give myself up for others. The gospel transforms me. So friends, how are you not living your life in a manner that is worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ? What area of your life does the gospel need to come to bear on? Maybe you're great at work and you're terrible at home. Maybe you're great at home and you're terrible at work. Maybe you're a wonderful father. The gospel clearly radiates from you, but your neighbors wouldn't have a clue. Maybe it's your finances. Maybe it's your speech. Maybe it's the way you interact with your spouse. What 
are the gospel implications you need to ask yourself? What needs to change? Are you easily recognized as a Christian? I'm not talking about being recognized because you have a sticker on your car. I'm not talking about people knowing that you're a Christian because of your Facebook rants. I'm not talking about people knowing that you're a Christian because you have a t-shirt that names it. Are you recognized as a Christian, not because of slogans, but because of your speech, your decisions, your behavior, your conduct, your customs, your traditions, your manner of life? In conclusion, what, consider with me, I think you know the answer. What will it take to live a life worthy of the gospel of Christ? This is great because you know the answer, don't you? What will it take to live your life in a manner that is worthy of of the gospel of Christ. It will take the gospel of Christ. It's not the front door, it's the whole house. It's the foundation. It's not just what you needed to become a Christian, it's what you need to be a Christian. If there's anything you know, know the gospel. If there's anything you rehearse, rehearse the gospel. If there's anything you call to the forefront of your mind, may it be the gospel. If there's any way you deal with your sin, may it be with the gospel. Gospel, gospel, gospel. If you are here this morning and something is stirring in your heart or in your mind, don't let this opportunity pass. If you'd like, and I would, I'll be here after service. I'll stand in the front for a while. I would love to talk to you. I'd love to listen. I'd love to pray with you. This is the comfort and the call of the gospel, friends. Believe it. Live a life worthy of it. This is the call Paul puts to the Philippians and, of course, to each of us this morning. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, help us in our unbelief. God, remind us when we forget the gospel. Convict us when we take the gospel for granted. Give us wisdom to see where the gospel needs to be imposed on our decisions and thoughts and speech and behavior. God, would you help us by your Holy Spirit, to live our lives in a manner that is worthy of the gospel of Christ. And we ask you this in the name of Jesus. Amen.